how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 333, and I had a conversation with Karen Poppy. Karen is a poet, a lawyer, and an activist. She's also non-binary. She most recently had a poem and interview published in Ms. Magazine, and her upcoming first full-length poetry book, Diving at the Lip of the Water, will be published in 2023 by Beltway Editions. We are all over the place in this episode. We discuss the creative process, literary heroes, women's rights, finding one's voice after deep criticisms. Uh, Because we talk about reproductive rights in this episode, I want to make a personal comment. Uh, I'm not I don't think it's not clear to my listeners where I stand in the realm of reproductive rights. I'm pro-choice, but I should make it clear uh, that I believe in any person's right to believe in whichever the side of the debate they're on. So, yes, that means I will defend anyone's right to be pro-life. I just, I don't believe that the government should have any say in our reproductive healths and freedoms. Uh, It doesn't, I'm not okay with the government regulating uteruses based on religious or personal beliefs of the government, especially when it goes against a vast majority of what this country wants. So I just, I wanted to make that clear. It's, it's important to me to make that clear. So, okay. <laughs> Looking for other episodes that are in the realm of today's episode, check out episode 92 with Yashi Brown episode 108 with Pat Hodge, episode 247 with Navaris Darson, and episode 259 with Carrie Ackery. In other news, I loved the movies Bullet Train and Everything Everywhere All at Once, and recent books that I have really dug are Stoner by John Williams, and no, it's not about drugs. It's about a man named Stoner. The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath, which somehow I never read in high school. Don't know how that happened, but it's a beautiful book. It's it's heavy, but it's gorgeous. Uh, the Ethical Slut by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton. And Stranger in the Woods by Annie Taylor. I love listening to murder mysteries and thrillers and whodunits. It's a guilty pleasure, as they say, although I don't know why I should feel guilty about finding pleasure in reading. So (laughs) I just wanted to recommend those to y'all because it's been a while since I've made any recommendations and I don't get paid for them or anything like that. It's just coming from my own heart. In other, other news, check out Hey Human Podcast for links and to learn more about my guests and the show, of course, uh, SusanRuth.com to learn more about me and uh, my music and my artwork, things like that. You can find my last record, All I Ever Wanted Was Everything, on iTunes or wherever you get your music. And please follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Also, check out my new relationships and sex show, Are We There Yet?, with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube under youtube.com slash Are We There Yet? podcast show. Thank you for listening. Be well. Take care of each other. Put good stuff out there in the world. Be hopeful if you can. I know things get abysmal sometimes, you know, especially if you read the news or watch the news or (laughs) are ever on Twitter. But, uh, you know, look for the good. And I know sometimes I can get very heated in, in conversation and sound a little bit like 
I don't believe in the better nature of our angels, but I, I do. I do think that we are ultimately good and that we will ultimately find our way. So I don't know if that helps anyone listening, but, you know, spread kindness, be love. All right, here we go. Karen Poppy, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you for having me, Susan. Absolutely. And we actually have a, a bit in common, I feel like. And as a poet, you are, and I love poetry and have tried my hand on it a few times, but uh, I really enjoy reading poetry very much. And so when we connected on Facebook, I think it was, uh, yeah. it was, it was a nice little bonding thing. Let's talk about where you grew up. I grew up in the Bay Area, a little bit further south from where I live now in a, a town called Foster City. Back then, it was a small town and just fairly recently built. It was built on landfill of all things, and everybody thought it was going to sink during one of the earthquakes, but it didn't. Instead, it grew and grew into now a larger part of Silicon Valley. So it's changed a lot since I lived there. When I grew up, there were fields to run in and butterflies and little rabbits leaping around. It was um, really an ideal childhood place. Did you have a close family growing up? I had a fairly close family and also a boisterous and sometimes <laughs> troubling family, but um, definitely um, did have a large extended family in the Bay Area. I was particularly close with my grandparents on my father's side. They uh, lived in San Francisco and my grandfather would come and see me every single day. Well, that's nice. What made it boisterous? Well, just the whole loud Jewish family thing we, we had going. Practicing Jewish or, or more ethnic Jewish? Um, a little bit of both, actually. I um, grew up primarily in a reform synagogue, and I had a bat mitzvah and did all of that. And I've carried on the tradition with my son. He just recently had his bar mitzvah. But um, a lot of cultural Judaism, too, and it comes into play in my poetry. Were you writing poetry as a young kid, or is that something that you grew into when you went to college? I started writing even before I was able to actually physically write. My mother would read to me and then I would recite to her my own poems and she would write them down. My first one, I don't know how I knew about nightingales at all. I don't think that I had any in my gardens growing up, but I wrote my first poem was about a nightingale. Something like, Nightingale, I love you. It wasn't um, very artful or anything that I would write now, but it got me started. And I'm really grateful to my mother that she wrote down what I was saying and took it seriously. It was, um, I guess, the first time I was taken seriously as a writer. Did you have the, the heart of a poet, as they say, the cliche of an empath and a wounded spirit? <laughs> I am not sure about that. I I tend to be 
fairly empathic. I care a lot about humans and animals and the world, but I've seen other people who are far more empathic, I think, than I am. I also don't know about being wounded and all of that. I try to keep myself pretty cheerful and I have a fairly optimistic outlook on life. Where does the poetry come from, do you think? Well, that is a good question and one that I'm still figuring out for myself. I oftentimes think it comes, and I've said this in other interviews, from another place. It's like it's coming through me and then I write it. I'm like, oh, okay, just writing this down, do to do whatever comes through. I'll write this down. That's pretty interesting. And sometimes it's a lot deeper than I am, which um, is kind of shocking to have that come through me. And sometimes it's actually quite funny. You feel like you're channeling maybe in some ways. I do. And it's not like being necessarily empathic or psychic. It's more like, I guess, maybe having the education in literature and then these conversations that come about with um, poets in my head or in the ether, what what have you. It just, um, it comes through. Is poetry your full-time gig? No, it's not. I actually, my um, main full-time gig is as an attorney for the Hartford Insurance, which is also kind of funny because that's what Wallace Stevens, the great poet Wallace Stevens did. He was an attorney and a vice president for the Hartford Insurance way back in the day. Interesting. Who are some of your favorite poets? Well, other than Wallace Stevens, because how can I not? I love Emily Dickinson, Sylvia Plath. I have a number of um, living poets I love and adore, too. I do love a wide variety of poets. Um, Emily and Sylvia, they tend to be a bit dark and broody. They do, although they both have good senses of humor, too. And um, I'm just listing the poets in English, um, the English language, and um, there are other poets. I love Federico Garcia Lorca. I love Neruda. Um, There are so many different poets I could name. Do you go into some sort of a headspace or does it just come naturally and you don't really have to work at it at this point? I definitely still go into a headspace. It's almost like a bit of a trance. If I have time at the moment, I'll go with it or I'll stop what I'm doing and I'll let it happen. But primarily, I try to keep a discipline. I During the pandemic, I haven't always been as good at it and I'm getting back to this. But my discipline plan normally is from around 9 or 9.30 at night till about midnight or 1 to write, to write something. Mm-hmm. So sometimes that's just poetry. Sometimes it's a longer work in prose, like I've written a couple of novels or a short story. It could be a nonfiction piece, but just to keep that type of practice. Do you want to read a couple of your poems? I would love to, actually. 
So the first one I'll read, and if it's okay with you, I would love to read a poem also that's not mine, that I almost feel is a companion piece to this poem. And the funny thing is, is I didn't know about this other poem by another poet until after I had written my poem. So possibly, I don't know, a little synchronicity, a little channeling, something, but um, they're both about foxes. So I'll show you the cover. I'm sorry for the people on the podcast, they can't see it, but the cover shows a sloth. And um, my poem though is about a fox and there's also a photo of a fox. The publication is Wild Hope Magazine. It's a project of Earth Island Institute, a 501c3, so a nonprofit. And they're just lovely as an organization, as humans. I highly recommend this beautiful publication. It's uh, field, field notes and images from nature's front lines. It's gorgeous writing and photography throughout. Um, I'm pretty hooked on it, but I was um, super excited that they published this poem of mine. It's called In That Place. Each point sings alive on his fiery amber fur. The fox waiting there in pines oxblood heat. Autumn perfection. Meditation a single beam upon outcrop of rock. He nestles in needles, rises and resettles on his muscled haunches. Eyes lock, yours and the fox's. You wish to stand still, forever yield where time launches its impeccable flow, like a river, stirs you to think of everything you see unwinding in the light, a murmur dissolving into meaning. Then the fox says, let this make you what you are. Beautiful. Thank you. And uh, this poem is by Eleanor Wiley. She was born in Somerville, New Jersey on September 7, 1885. So she wrote this poem that I discovered after I wrote in that place. And her poem is titled Escape. A friend of mine said that she thinks that it's really about the patriarchy. And I don't disagree with her. Escape. When foxes eat the last gold grape and the last white antelope is killed, I shall stop fighting and escape into a little house I'll build. But first I'll shrink to fairy size with a whisper no one understands, making blind moons of all your eyes and muddy roads of all your hands. And you may grope for me in vain in hollows under the mangrove root, or where in apple-scented rain, the silver wasp nests hang like fruit. Beautiful. I just love that poem. If I could write a poem that reaches that level, I would be happy. It's always the reach, right? Always trying to do better. The reach meaning the people that will hear it? I assume? No, actually, the reach in 
getting mastery over the language in writing something that's better than I've written before. So I feel like it's a progression and I have certain pieces that I like that I've written. I hope that that's not immodest to say, but I'm still striving. Right. And I mean, yes, until we die, we will always be striving or else what have we got to live for? Exactly right. And I do also agree that the reach to other people is important. That's what the poetry is for. It's to speak to others, to make them feel something. Most importantly, to make them feel and know that they are not alone, that these emotions that we all have, these experiences that we all have, they may be unique to us in many ways, but also universal. Was it difficult to find your voice? Well, since it's not always my voice, (laughs) not really, it just comes. But I guess it was difficult to come back to my voice. I had 17 years where I didn't write very much, maybe like a little scribble scrabble here or there. And then poof, it just was like lightning and I started to write and write and write and I have not stopped and I will bring anybody with me on the journey who wants to join it feels a bit like a train like we just hook on more cars and away we go I've um, been really fortunate that a number of my friends a number of other poets have also come back to writing have written more i've uh, i've seen poets who weren't necessarily my friends before but they saw what happened with me and they started writing again or republishing their work and it's just been delightful to me to see that why did you take 17 years off i didn't mean to i had someone say something to me that was unkind and it just basically cut me off at the stock you know and so it took those 17 years maybe to grow back interesting was it about your poetry or you in general it was not about my poetry i had a business card when i was um, younger that said my name and writer (laughs) And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. But this radio host took one look at my card and he said, oh, a writer. Oh, how cute. And I just creatively died right there, at Hmm. least for 17 years. I don't know what it was about that comment, but something in it just uh, did. It cut off my stock. It cut me to the quick and uh, really take note of that now how can we instead of discouraging people instead of even inadvertently saying something unkind how can we try to really embrace everybody and their creative journeys why do you think i mean i know you say you don't know but but there must be some part of you that knows why it affected you so deeply this random person saying that to you 
I suppose because I probably looked up to him and a friend of his was also a very well-known writer at the time. They were together in the room when this happened and it was just kind of that confluence. How did you regain your trust in yourself? I don't know. I don't know if it was time and age but really, it just seemed like it was the moment to start again. Mm. Some things are mysterious, right? You remember the poem that you started back with? Was it about embracing your strengths and, and coming out of a dark night? Well, no, it was... I have it here in my first chapbook, Crack Open Emergency. I wrote these few lines and then later I edited it a bit. But the other thing that had me come back to writing, and I don't like to talk about it much, you know, we like to talk about things that are a little lighter. I I had a traumatic experience and it instead of cutting me off this time it invigorated me it was maybe the act of ultimate revenge to be the writer I now am if that makes sense it does it does do you happen to have the poem that you wrote when you came back from that 17-year hiatus? I do. I, I have that poem. I just wrote it out while I was traveling. And then it, um, it came to me actually before my traumatic experience. And then after the traumatic experience, well, I didn't stop with that one poem, you know, I just kept going. And actually, that's my mantra, go and keep going, go and keep going. So this poem is titled, Your Words. I want you to speak to me, in fact, as you would speak to your animals. Because I want to capture that pure, true animal of your words pungent and alive. Those you don't need to speak because they give softly breathing in the night. Their visible scent a glistening fever, a ripe lurking as I lull them gently to sleep. And that was the one that set the ball rolling again. It did as well as all the other factors. It was kind of like everything coming into play all at once right mm -hmm. and so just one of those cosmic moments i guess i think it's interesting i think a lot of people lose their power in a moment and sometimes it takes a lot to get it back and so i think it's always interesting for people listening to hear other person another person's experience of how they regained their power. I think that something that helped me regain my power was actually interlaced with the trauma because for a long time, well, a long time for me for several, several months, right? 
I actually disassociated. Like you couldn't tell me that I was traumatized. I wouldn't have been able to access that. Um, and I first started to access a little bit of it when I told my mom, here we go again with my mom, right? And um, I told my mom a little bit about what happened, not everything, because I wasn't able to fully articulate the largeness of it. But I told her a little and she said, oh my God. And she launched into what she thought it was. That to me made me I guess, check back in with reality. And then I was like, oh my God, this isn't just me spiraling. I actually have a right to be upset. And upset is an understatement. So then I was able to get back in touch with reality, of the reality of the situation and what had happened and my feelings, but it didn't stop me from writing quite the opposite. At that point, I was just like, no holds barred. I'm going to just go for this. Have you, do you feel come to a place from that trauma where you're healed? I don't know. I don't think so yet. I think at times that I am. And then it resurfaces. But what I've asked of one of the people who I don't want to say involved like they necessarily did the thing, but involved within the structure of what happened, if you will, I've asked that we have some sort of uh, reconciliation and that we come to peace in some way and that's as much as we can do in this life is reach out to others and offer peace either they can take it and we can move on from that place or we've tried our best and sometimes you know you can't do that with everybody some people it's too dangerous or it's not healthy, and that's okay too. It's actually better in those situations just to move on with one's own healing. So I wanted to offer that to people listening in that it's okay that we don't always need to take responsibility and we shouldn't for others' actions, but we definitely should for our own. I think that's well stated. Definitely. And you, you have a child? I do. He's the love of my life and utter delight. He is 13 years old and he is brilliant and wise and kind. He just has so much about him that is exemplary. He really is. He's just an exemplary human. Is he manifesting signs of, of being a creative and of writing as well? Okay, so here's the thing. This comes up every now and again with him. He believes in having free and open access to creative work. And I don't know how he'll feel about it one day when he's needing to earn a living. But for now, he really truly believes that anything that he creates should be out there in the public domain. So he wrote this short story and 
that was a few years ago. One of my friends who's a literary agent came up to him. He came with me to a, a conference, a writer's conference. And she said to him, I'll offer you literary representation on your story. And I think she meant to have him expand on it, you know. She was standing next to one of her clients. She doesn't represent me. Oh, no. She was standing next to her client, who's a very famous novelist. I won't name names. And my son said at the time, and he still says this, no, I'm sorry, but I don't want to accept literary representation. I created a website for my short story so that people can access it. I believe in free and open access. Wow. He turned her down on the spot and the literary agent and her client, this famous novelist, they were just standing there with their mouths open, jaws dropped. It was quite extraordinary. And uh, over the weekend, we had coffee with one of my friends who's a librarian and she brought up to him, well, are you a writer? And he said, no. And I reminded him of this whole story. And he said, well, yes, but I'm not writing anything right now. And I do not want to have my work published in a way that's not free and open access. So he's still very much into this point. Hmm. But primarily, he identifies as a mathematician and a scientist he wants to be an astrophysicist and work for NASA. That's a very poetic expression of science. It really is. I asked him about this because how do you feel comfortable with a type of science that is purely theoretical on so many levels and not having the answers and well, I guess um, I think he quipped that you have the answers when something either works or it doesn't. <laughs> but that made me a little uncomfortable because I don't want to. I hate the idea of him being out in outer space, right? And having something not work. I've uh, made him promise to me there. We we have, you know, a couple of things I've made him promise to me, but he he wouldn't agree to this one. I asked him to never untether himself in space. That's my deepest fear. And he said he can't promise that. Sounds like an interesting kid. He's super interesting. And I guess I just thought symbolically, like most parents, they want to be able to keep their connection with their kid, like don't untether from me. I'm fine with him moving about into the world, you know, and even going out into space. But to untether from the safety of the space station or where wherever he is it just seems so scary to me I don't want him floating out there I want my I want my kid to come back home what is his website where he posts his short stories we talked about that and he actually doesn't remember and I I know he doesn't remember his website I don't know if he told me that because he doesn't want me finding it, but he said that he didn't remember and uh, that it's <laughs> basically somewhere. So his short story got untethered. <laughs> I was just going to say, so he's untethered on the internet somewhere. <clears throat> My That's guess right. is he knows exactly where it is. He just doesn't want you reading it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. That's a teenager for you. 
it'll be interesting to see as he grows up too uh how he feels about intellectual property being given away for free it sounds like a person who doesn't have to pay bills <laughs> right not yet but we did talk about that because he had an early design actually of a game that was taken and it was appropriated by an adult and um monetized i know so we talked about that and about sharing ideas and how even when you share with people you trust it's important to have contracts or agreements that they're not going to use it oh my gosh i hope some did did some sort of comeuppance happen with that adult I don't i don't know goodness I, I don't know there are certain things at some point you just have to let go and well yeah. i haven't quite let it go yet but on a, an emotional level but as far as being just, a lawyer <laughs> right i mean i don't think that it was monetized to the point where it would be worth it to pursue but even if it was it, it's kind of funny being a lawyer maybe i'm the least type of person to want to bring a suit because i know what's involved i know all the heartache and well i don't want to be a part of that and i certainly wouldn't want my child to be a part of that so it's um oftentimes best to avoid a, a lawsuit <laughs> yeah right uh although i know it's quite the litigious country that we live in in light of everything going on and in, in at least in america's government really all over the world um i historically poetry has been a way from those who are oppressed to speak out and to let their voices and their opinions be heard as a form of protest as a form of power as a form of rebellion uh i imagine that everything going on right now is lighting some fires within you i've been aware of this and writing about it for a while now i just hope that eventually the poetic words can make changes the way that they're supposed to somebody said that the best politicians are actually not politicians at all they're the poets they're the people who speak for the people so here's my poem a woman's body a power unto itself and this is written in the voice of a woman or women i'm not actually a woman i'm non-binary but i write from different perspectives a woman's body a power unto itself take away every poem in which a woman's body is a road take away every song in which a woman's body is a back road take away every time in which a woman's body is passed over passed through stomped on plowed like dirt when men write us sing us inanimate a fertile or blighted land when men write themselves sing themselves over our bodies silence our power of decision words like duct tape 
suffocate, praise, violation. Take away every poem, take away every song. And I'll add to this, take away every Supreme Court decision that steals our volition. Well put. It is interesting how often uh, women are subjugated into a role of inanimacy in works of quote-unquote art in music and in poetry. It, it is true. And here we are, you know, and I say we because I'm including myself in this. I'm often perceived as a woman, even if I'm not one, as things objects rather than living breathing beings and i have no words for that even as a poet as a writer at some point i just wonder why there are things in our society that need to change we need to be vocal about that change we can't just perform and have performative politics. We can't just tweet or have a Facebook post or something of that nature. We have to get out there and we have to vote. We have to protest. We have to speak out and change the tide. And call representatives and senators, flood their phones. That's right. Send them postcards, send them emails. You can go on their websites. They have easy ways to do that. And if your congressperson, if your senator isn't doing what they need to do to protect your rights, vote them out. Absolutely. When did you realize you're non-binary? I think probably when I was a toddler. We know ourselves very young, don't we? But I didn't have words for it. And when I had my son, I still identified as a woman because, or female, because that's what I had as far as a check the box type of situation. Then when my son was a toddler, he himself, he became very articulate, like more so than normal. He's very bright. And one day we were cuddling in bed and he said, mommy, you are the double feminine. And I asked him, well, what does that mean? And um, I'm going to read to you because I I have it here. Actually, I wrote it into an essay. Um, I want to use his exact words. So he further explained that he did not mean extra feminine, but rather, and I'm quoting him, you have both the male and female inside you. And I just started to weep. I started to cry such ugly tears at that point. I mean, it was beautiful and ugly at the same time, but it was like the floodgates had opened and my identity was revealed. (sighs) I think like maybe three, maybe four. I mean, this kid, he knew. And then a little bit after that, I started to read about the non-binary identity And I was like, dad, now I have a word for what I am. 
But my son had a lot more than just, you know, one little hyphenated word for what I am. He really was able to define me. It's interesting because I consider everyone to encompass the feminine and the masculine. And so now that there's a word that for people that really, I think, feel neither male or female, neither feminine or masculine, this non-binary, this idea that there is a a gray scale, if you will, I I think it makes a lot easier for people who don't. I don't know that anyone fits on a 100% spectrum. It just seems insane to me that that's the thing that people really want to double down on. It's interesting to me too, and it's sad. Well, why why battle these things? Nobody knows others the way that a person knows themselves. Knows themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, and why so, do you care? That's the other thing. I'm thinking, how does it ruin my right. life in any way that you are living your life non-binary? It hasn't, it doesn't make your son that way. He identifies as he identifies. I don't. This That's whole true. thing that people in the LGBTQ plus community are somehow, uh, what is the, the rhetoric used these days that they're grooming or any of this nonsense? If that were the case, so all these straight people having children who happen to be in the LGBTQ plus, and very few people in LGBTQ plus have children who are in LGBTQ plus, usually they, you know, their children end up being straight. So with that logic, that means that straight people should stop having kids. Exactly. Because no one's having the gay kids. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, that and well, most of our society is heterosexual, heteronormative. I I shouldn't say heterosexual because that's actually not true statistically, but heteronormative. Right. And that, uh, the idea that one begets the other is insane to me. It's like, no, people just who, who they are and they are who they are. Then we would say that people who are heterosexual and having children, that they're grooming their children to be heterosexual, but it's all nonsense. We wouldn't say that. I guess I see myself, I mean, I'm a writer, I'm a creative. Inside, it's just a prism of colors. The whole world and all its possibilities is it's not black and white and it never has been and it never should be in my humble opinion. And here's the thing. If you don't like the fact that other people uh, identify a certain way, that's your business too, but keep it to yourself. You know, you get to think what you think. Fine. I'll think what I think. Fine. But as soon as you start telling me how I'm supposed to live my life or how I'm supposed to think based on your narrow version of the world, I mean, that's where I start getting really roughed up in the brain pan. That's how I feel too. I mean, either mind your own business and don't talk about other people or better yet, get educated about it. You don't know, you don't know about the non-binary identity. You could ask the person about their identity but that's actually putting the burden on that person to tell you more. There's this wonderful thing. It's called the internet. 
you can look up articles and read all sorts of educational, informative material about whatever it is that you don't know. And maybe you feel like you hate a certain group of people. Well, sit with yourself. Why would I hate it at all? Why do I hate someone? There's a deep thing where people hate that which they see in themselves, right? That they don't want to touch or admit to. So, I mean, we see that a lot of the times with people that are screaming homophobia, uh, homophobic rants, and then they get caught with their proverbial pants down. So Exactly right. Yeah. And that's really sad too. It is. It is. I hate themselves. That makes me sad. It makes me sad that there are people out there that are so out of touch with who they are that it turns into a hatred of somebody else instead of embracing and self-loving themselves. It makes me sad that we would have a woman on the Supreme Court of the United States who would make a decision that affects the rights of women so horrifically. If that's not self-hate, I don't know what is. I agree with you. Because they have this rhetoric that abortion is solely about the removal of a baby. But unfortunately, they they leave that short because it's easier to manipulate the masses. And they don't talk about it as being health care for women. It's health care for women. Some women have miscarriages and need to have that fetus removed or they'll bleed to death or go septic. You know, when little kids get pregnant, which happens, giving birth at age nine or 10 or 11, the traumatic effect of that on your body, it would rip a body apart, a tiny body apart like that, you know? Exactly. And when it's the product of incest, rape, abuse. Which is more than likely than not likely, unfortunately. And then just the 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 fact that birth control itself, that that's even now in the firing line. And the fact that birth control is, there's a whole bunch of reasons to use birth control that have nothing to do with pregnancy. But exactly, like like hormone regulation for headaches, headaches, hormones, all sorts of things. uh, The the uterine lining going crazy, and the you know all sorts of like the PID stuff, and yeah, endometriosis, endometriosis, yeah, all sorts of things. And ultimately, these laws are not about protecting a baby because, well life doesn't begin until birth but it's about controlling women why do we want to do that that makes no sense oh i have a lot of theories (laughs) i would love to hear the theories oh all sorts of things if you make it a felony to to have an abortion or even to take birth control or to help people doctors who are helping people have abortions, whatever, that's a felony. You can't vote with a felony, right? So right there, you've eliminated a large voting populace. Uh, It definitely hurts people of color and people in poverty way more. White people will always, rich white people especially, but they'll always be able to get an abortion. You know, We would say that, except that it does curtail the rights. I think it will. And that's where we have to be careful 
the wealthy white women in this country, listen up, go and vote because you're voting for yourselves. You may think you're protected because of your skin color, because of your wealth. Ultimately, even if you have good lawyers, you could end up in hot water too. Mm-hmm. I also think that uh, the forced production of babies is because adoption is a money-making scenario. Uh, we need a poverty class in order for the wealthy class to make more money because the poverty class will be forced to work in laborious positions that the upper classes don't want. And so they need a workforce. They need people to send off to war. So if the population starts declining, who's going to go fight their wars? Historically, the people that go to fight the wars, the poverty class. The poorer people. Yeah. So it's a no brainer that they're screaming about, oh, you know, it's, this is about the morality of life bullshit i call bullshit because if it were about the morality and the sanctity of life and the care of life and the importance of life then that care that they're they're preaching about would continue on once the child is born and america is one of the worst in the world for natal care it's dangerous to be pregnant and have to give birth in the united states and it's just, just frustrating that people don't take the thoughts further out, you know? Also, God is smoting left and right in the Bible. If you're going to use the Bible as a reference to why people shouldn't get abortions, well, you're not reading the Bible because there are, there's recipes for abortion in the Bible. God is killing children and mothers with pregnant bellies and, you know, wiping out entire groups of people, children. I just wanted to touch, too, on the issue of population. Instead of having an increase of population, the smarter thing, the more intelligent thing, the thing that would actually save our planet, because we need to save ourselves from ourselves, right, would be to either have a plateau in our population or, better yet, a decrease. We have had such an increase. If you look at the statistics from, let's just say 1970 to today, billions more than we had back then. It's showing we need more housing, we need more cars on the road, more other other forms of transportation are needed. We are basically choking out our earth. We are preventing animals from living coexisting with us other than our domesticated animals so maybe instead of building our population we should take a look at that what can we do to heal mother earth and take care of the mothers the human mothers in our country those are long-term solutions though right and people are very much in the now they are not interested i mean it's clear it's clear that climate change has happened, that we are burning up. And the more we do that, the more of these viruses will run, run amok because they're not having cold winters that kill things off. This planet, I'm sure, was made to be able to sustain tons of people, but without global efforts of, of community and communication, 
it ain't going to work and it's not working. And, you know, people in America are starving. Certainly people all over the world are starving, but people in this country, supposedly the greatest country in the world, arguably, uh, are starving. So I call bullshit on the whole thing of we need more people to make it work. I'm with you. But then they start screaming eugenics. I'm like, well, you know, here's the thing. (laughs) There's so many facets to this. And if they are so concerned about babies and children, they're not. Don't let them starve. Don't let these children go hungry. This, like you said, it's not about the babies. It's about control. It's about control. And it's about needing uh, property and, you know, commodity. Thinking of human life as property and, you know, commodity. That's, that's what they're seeing a need for. And that's terrifying. It's terrifying. Well, it's our all too recent national history right there. Well, they used to gather up, interestingly enough, this, you know, in the seventies, right. They would gather up truant children and, and force them to get vasectomies or their tubes tied. Generally people of color, children of color, our history is bleak. And we there now there's people that want to turn their back on that saying that, Oh, nobody wants to talk about that stuff. Well, that's exactly how you repeat it. But anyway, we can go on and on about this. I still have hope for us. As I do too. I do. A human race. I think that we have such beauty that we ultimately have such care of each other as a whole that we can change things. We can turn things around. We just need to take action. I think if we see that's my optimism. I think if we see the human race as the human race, that that is true. But as long as we hold tight to tribalism and feeling that one particular person is better than another, or that certain people are deemed illegal or less than, or that that's that saying, no one is free until all are free. So until we figure that out, I'm, I'd like to be hopeful. I would. I try to stay optimistic. It's very difficult these days to do, but I'm I'm trying. We'll get there eventually. Maybe not within our lifetime, but hopefully within the future generations, the human race will have evolved and will just be as we should be. A collective spirit. I hope so. Here's to that. How can people find you and learn more about your poetry? I have a website. My website is Karen Poppy, K-A-R-E-N-P-O-P-P-Y, like the flower.com. And I also have a Facebook author page. I have other things in the works. I am working on a short book that's a humorous book about cats and Shakespeare. And I just got it um, wonderfully illustrated. And so I'm looking for a publishing home for that work right now. And when does that come out? We don't know because I need to find a publisher for it. So I'm querying around and uh, we'll, we'll see what happens, but you may see something floating around about that too on 
online. And what's it called? It's called Wilhelmina Catspear, The Selected Works. Basically, the premise is that a cat by the name of Wilhelmina Catspear was the cat of William Shakespeare and his wife, Anne Hathaway, who the actress, I think, is named after. Anyway, she was the one, Wilhelmina Catspear, who actually wrote all of Shakespeare's works in the feline language. And somehow William Shakespeare was able to understand the feline language and stole her lines. Interesting. So it came down the original feline version of these plays and poems through the matriarchal lineage of cats. So the descendant of Wilhelmina Catspear, who also is named Wilhelmina Catspear, she um, had the works and needed a translator. And luckily I was able to translate them. I love it. That's fun. Yeah, it was a fun project and I'm looking forward to finding the publishing home for the project and sharing it with the world. I really want to bring humor and joy and happiness to people. We need that now more than ever. I agree. If you can imagine that every single one of William Shakespeare's plays and poems, anything he wrote was actually originally scratched out on furniture by a cat. In the feline language, and then stolen by William Shakespeare. Well, that's a lot of work. I, I don't know if you've ever seen the complete work of William Shakespeare. That is a thick book. I have many iterations of it here in my own library. I'm a big Shakespeare fan. I had no idea he was such a scoundrel as to rob Wilhelmina of her work. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> that's hilarious. Well, that that's going to be fun. I, I wish you great success with that. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you, Susan. I really appreciate your time, too. I love knowing that there are poets in the world. Well, I love knowing that there are people who love poetry. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Rate, review, subscribe, follow Hey Human Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.